There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. It's the rate that's a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello, and thank you for joining us for this special episode of Climactic. I'm your host today, Mark Spencer. This is quite the timely special episode, and we're releasing this now because it contains two stories that are somewhat time-sensitive. If you've been following the news at all this week, no doubt you've been hearing the news out of Hong Kong. In this semi-autonomous region of China, the anniversary of the handover from British colonial rule to Chinese rule is always a time of raw emotions and potential strife. This year, however, as I'm sure you don't need me telling you, things went to a much more heightened level. There's a lot of great resources out there to understand what's going on in Hong Kong right now, and I've included a link to an especially good video in the description. But the events in Hong Kong are especially timely and relevant to the climate community at a time we're just two months away from a general global climate strike, the next evolution of the school strikes for climate. The next strike isn't just for school students. It's open invitation and will go from September 20th for a full week in cities all over the world, closely followed by Extinction Rebellion strikes and a general strike on October the 8th also for a full week. I've been having a lot of conversations lately with people about the efficacy, the efficiency, the effectiveness of striking. And while that's an interesting conversation to be had, there's no denying that these events are going to be happening in the first place. Disruption is coming to a city near you, whether you like it or not. So with that in mind, we're bringing you these two stories today about protest and civil action from two different ends of the spectrum. From Hong Kong, with millions of protesters, to Knox, an eastern suburb of Melbourne, where the planned redevelopment and destruction of a neighborhood lake is causing one young man to organize and find his voice. We'll start now with this dispatch from City Councilwoman, former guest of the show and friend of the show, Joe Dodds. I just opened my Facebook app and there you are with photos from Hong Kong, where you are at the moment, attending the massive one, two million plus person protests against China at the anniversary of the British handover to the Chinese of Hong Kong. What are you doing over there, Joe? And uh, how are you finding it? Yeah, hi, Mark. I came over to Hong Kong really to visit my foster sister, Phyllis. It was just good timing that I happened to be here with some of my family um, on the day that the uh, anniversary of handover, which I was also here for in 1997, but the big march, yeah, which I think is the third, maybe, of the big marches. Um, and I know that the media is talking a bit about the violence that's happened as a result of some of the, the protestations against the moves by Carrie Lam for this extradition order and other things, but you, you really have to look at the numbers. There's 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 maybe one for every one person who's behaving with aggression there are literally 10,000 people who are marching peacefully in the streets of Hong Kong wearing black to signify their allegiance to this cause 
and the protesters have a list of five demands, which I'll have to double check before I get back to you, but one is for Carrie Lamb to step down and a demand to have a commission that looks into the bigger picture of the protests and the response to the protests. So they're the first and the biggest two demands. So the, the withdrawal of the extradition order is further down that list. But yeah, I'll be talking to some local people here and get back to you with uh, more details. See you. Joe, who used to work in radio and who's become an impassioned public speaker and advocate in the wake of the devastating 2018 Tathra fires, which affected not only her community, but her constituents as a local councilwoman, conducted this great interview for us with her foster sister, Phyllis. To give you a better idea of the dynamics on the ground and how these protests are actually playing out. Joe Dodds here, and I'm here with Phyllis Chan. Hello, everybody. It's Phyllis Chan from Hong Kong. I'm in Hong Kong visiting Phyllis, and it's been perfect timing because we went in on Monday to the big protests down uh, near Admiralty and Causeway Bay. An amazing number of people were there, and it was a real surprise to me to see so many Hong Kong people come out to protest what's happening from Carrie Lam. And who's Carrie Lam? Maybe you can explain her. She's the chief executive of Hong Kong. The one in charge during this process where there's a, a move to have the extradition order passed through Parliament. Do you have Parliament? Is that what it's called? We have the Electrical Council. Yeah, so through, uh, through LegCo, yeah. So what what's been your impression of the protests so far because i think this is the third one maybe about the extradition order that's right the first major one was on the 9th where a million people turned up and then the government sort of said we will still be going ahead with the reading the second reading which then uh, a lot of people would round up at the electrical uh, area that was on the 12th and the response from the government was not sort of like responsive to the demand of the students and Hong Kong people. So in the end, we had another march on the 16th, which two million people turn up. Yeah. And that's out of a population of how many? 7.4 million people. That is incredible. Yeah. yeah. On the first march, I actually took my two nieces age seven and nine years old. They're probably too young to realise what happened. But knowing that it's you know, the turning point of Hong Kong and I want them to be there, mm. so I took them to the march. And finally, the march that I had with you, again, there's over half a, half a million people turn up. Um, yeah. Hong Kong people is not known for patience, but yet, you know, like three weeks in, in a row, that, yeah. that many people turn up. It says something about the passion of Hong Kong people, you know, asking for democracy. Mm. So what are the five things they're asking for? Well, the first thing is, you know, what happened in Hong Kong? Someone is responsible. Carrie Lam, she's being responsible for driving, you know, the amendment bill through. So she should step down. Um, The other major thing is what's happened. There should be an independent commission to review, you know, the whole whole situations so that we don't repeat this mistake ever again. And very early on, the police termed this as a riot. Mm. This, and then in the end, they sort of say, we're going to prosecute five, five students, and they are the rioter. And so the other uh, request is also f- to release the student. Who were arrested. Arre- arrested. Yes. And, yep. and, yes. I mean, it's great seeing so many out on, out on the streets and protesting, and, and that's a kind of um, important thing to do. But there's also been quite a tragic 
turn of events with some of the young people giving their lives for this. Can you explain what happened? Well, what happened is, you know, the, the demand for democracy, you know, we are supposed to have this right to, you know, nominate our chief executive. So people, you know, we protest, we go on a march, nothing changed. And at the end of the day, over the last 22 years, the young, young sort of youth in Hong Kong see that, you know, the last generation of people trying to do things, you know, to have democracy, it didn't work. Mm -hmm. And for them, that's why they sort of, you know, they, they, they see the situation of quite, they're quite despair, and they have to take something drastic. And so some of the youths, the youngsters, they, they sort of went on to the extreme. They're trying to make their voice heard. Maybe if they give the life up, maybe the government would change their mind. Mm. But one after another, and the third one, uh, commit suicide. And since then, the chief executive didn't say anything. Mm. And yet, despite all the big marches, protests, Carrie Lam, she only visited the uh, police associations, pro-government camps, people, and they're not sort of like talking to, listen to wider com community. So to us, she's actually you know, quite distant. She's not listening to the voice of Hong Kong people mm. at all. So what do you think will happen next? Will the Hong Kong people keep up this energy? I think they certainly will. Um, with the way that the march of protests being organised now, especially for the youngsters, there is no, elite, no leader. They would actually, through the groups, they would actually decide unanimously how to do it, you know, what to do. And even the withdrawal yesterday from the Lechko building, it was by voting mm. when, when they do that. Yeah. So just for context, the Lechko building was where some of the protesters on Monday broke into the building. Uh, there was an interesting situation that the police were inside the building at first, and then the police seemed to disappear, which then allowed the protesters to go into that building. What do you think was happening there? Well, this sort of like conspiracy theory, whether the whole thing was being set up so that it would divert their attentions. They have like press in there, shooting like videos that the protesters are, you know, smashing paints in the, in the buildings. Van, yeah. Vandalism. Yeah, so in the way, that's the government immediately, they held a press conference at four o'clock in the morning condemning the situations. So it's a way that they can divert attention mm. that you know, pointing to, to the violence, but to the youngsters' people, they might have fallen to trap. Yes, and there's certainly been no violence, uh, well, very limited violence, even towards the police. It's been thus far actually fairly peaceful, apart from damage to, to physical objects. Well, they actually very restrained in that sense. Yep. They are not trying to actually cause harm to anyone. Lechko being a symbol of the power is their way of expressing that, you know, look, you're going to listen to us. What's your sense of what will happen in the next, you know, six months or so? It's been very unsettling to, you know, Hong Kong people. And we really don't know um, what will happen. The fact is, the government are actually given the opportunity if they actually you know, um, meet the certain demand of the student, it would not get to where it is. It's just that they've been ignoring and not responding yep, at, all. at all. Yeah, yeah. 
And, and when we're saying students, I mean, we were on the march the other day and uh, I saw a lot of people who didn't seem to be students, so it's very much um, across all ages, isn't it? It is. It's definitely across all ages, across, you know, uh, generations. You would see a family of three generations, like people, grandma, grandpa, in their 80s, mm. and then parents. And very often you would see, like, you know, um, people holding the toddlers, whether yes. it's four or five year, years old. Yeah. Yeah, that's you know how concerned that they are. Yeah, and even people in wheelchair, people with disability, would mm. come out and protest. Mm. And it's been incredibly hot too, so it hasn't been an easy or comfortable thing to do with the rain and, and the very humid weather we've got here at the moment. So, it, yeah, it looks like a big commitment. It is. Do you think people are safe to go on the marches? I feel safe. I feel safe taking my you know yeah. seven, nine, mm. eleven years eight years old. And it's a way that we, we have to be collectively be responsible for our future. Yeah, and I think probably you're more safe the more people are on the street marching peacefully. Um, and that certainly outnumbers the people who are doing the more aggressive things and breaking into LegCo. Although I just read in the newspaper that the people who broke into LegCo, even though they did some damage, they also were very respectful of the library and they were careful not to break the vases, <laughs> and they even left money in the fridge for the sodas that they drank. So obviously, even when they're venting those frustrations, people are still behaving with a lot of um, care and, and concern about how they'll be perceived. Not only that, um, you know, because there are reporters in the, in the building as well, and so knowing that the police are going to come, to come and so the, the students would actually give out mask to the uh, reporters and also helmet to protect just in case there's any violence being yes yeah. so all right well I hope things um, I hope things progress slowly if necessary but quickly if you could um, and that the the government here in Carrie Lamb in particular does start to speak to the people yeah yeah thank you Joe we <laughs> surely hope so because it's been a very tiring, sort of like draining month for Hong Kong people to go on three marches, four marches yeah, uh, in, a, in a month. Yeah, right. and it's affecting the whole, the whole of, of Hong Kong. You can see yeah, businesses we've talked to a long way from where the marches were are being <laughs> impacted. So, yeah, the whole island is very much uh, concerned and involved. Well, thanks for your time, Phyllis. Thank you very much, <laughs> Joe. So I really doubt in hearing that that I'm the only one that can see a clear parallel between what's going on in Hong Kong right now and the wider story of climate change action in our society. There are large, powerful, structural forces that don't want us to change, that don't want us to address the climate crisis, that don't want us to transition. But luckily, finally, there are a lot of us waking up to the fact we have to change, and we have to change now. But the question then becomes, what do we do about it? And one of the things I've been really struck by in watching the news coverage of the last week is the really strong reinforcement that violence is counterproductive. Even while it's sadly so near at hand, and it seems sometimes such a natural reaction, it remains to be seen whether the Hong Kong protests will result in a positive outcome. But it's been incredibly clear and stark that a violent outburst like the taking of the Legislative Council building in Hong Kong, only set that movement back. At least, that's my takeaway. I'd love to hear yours. 
What is the story of Hong Kong telling you? And this is in no way to trivialize or diminish the real human effort, the pain that's being felt in Hong Kong, and the massive amount of energy that's being expended by a huge percentage of the Hong Konger population to push for a better future. We turn now to a bit closer to home, at least closer to my home. In the suburb of Knox in East Melbourne, there sits a deep water lake that is home and habitat to endangered species, and it's on land previously owned by the Department of Environment, Land, Water, and Planning, also known as DELP. DELP no longer require this site, calling it surplus to requirements, and they've handed the site over to Development Victoria, which is the arm of the state government that oversees big development projects and brings in a lot of revenue for the state government. Development Victoria have done their thing, looked at the site and worked out a development plan, and unfortunately this plan sees Lake Knox as surplus to requirements. You can hear a lot more about Lake Knox from a few very clued-in locals in a previous episode of Climactic, episode number 52, their own words, Lake Knox. And because of these locals and the groups they're members of, Greening Knox, First Friends of Dandenong Creek, I heard the story of Hunter, a young local who loves the lake, who spends a lot of time there, and decided not to take the news of the destruction of his neighborhood lake lying down. Hunter is mobilizing the community. He's meeting with local politicians and council, his mayor, and state government officials as well. He started a petition, a link to which you can find in the show notes, and he is running a gold standard community engagement campaign. It's our great privilege that Hunter has sent in a recording of the speech he's been giving to local figures and politicians, and we're so thrilled to be able to help him spread the word about his excellent campaign. This young man is someone to watch, and if we believe in civil engagement, then this is the kind of thing we need to get behind. Taking to the street in protest is sadly something we've had to do a lot of lately, and it looks like there's a lot more of it on the horizon. But we need to use our full toolkit as citizens until then to get our message across and ask for the responsiveness of our government, and Hunter is setting a great example for how to do that. Thank you, Hunter. And without further ado, here's the speech of one brave young man whose name is Hunter, and I am 13 years old. A lake next to my home is going to be bulldozed, which is home to so many incredible Australian species. This is so cool, and wildlife will be extremely stressed to have this happen to their home. I have recorded them to accompany this talk. You will hear them in the background. This is an amazing lake, which is near my home and school, and has so many incredible species there. I understand that state government's plan is to completely alter this habitat by turning it into wetlands. But that seems weird when you have this beyond amazing ecosystem that is so special. I need to highlight concerns from my generation which have little to no voice in making decisions that affect our future, and this is one of them. Older generations were lucky enough to experience when there were fresh water creeks, lakes to fish in, and seas to explore. When I met with Nick Wakeling, he told me how he used to swim in the Dandenong Creek. Well, that would certainly not be happening during my lifetime. 
My generation sees plastic bags and waste like foam choking our creeks and killing our wildlife. Our seas are full of plastic and we have the doom of climate change. We learn about the climate issues in science at school. I go to Fairhills High, so the lake and the bird life there is my neighbour. We learn about the impact of humans on the environment, specifically the negative impact and the excessive carbon in the atmosphere, which is creating climate change. Just in case you don't know, one particular reason for excess carbon is due to the destruction of native habitats and tree clearing. It may interest you in a publication called Science Daily. They have researched that lakes store carbon and potentially are more valuable for carbon storage than oceans. If we are experiencing more drought, warming temperatures, shouldn't we keep deep lakes? Our bird life in Knox need water and for locals it helps so much for their mental well-being when we are coping through heat waves. Besides being in a climate crisis, we are experiencing an extinction crisis. We are losing species at an unprecedented rate and ecosystems are collapsing. There are 37 threatened bird species in Knox and this lake is home to one of these. The bluebill duck is one of these birds and should be nurtured and not have its home exploited just for more high density housing. This duck is not found in many other parts of Victoria, let alone Knox. Why not showcase this lake and develop wetlands around it to support the ecosystem? The mayor of Knox told me in a meeting I had with him that they can manage deep water lakes, so council would like to see the lake remain. He is very supportive of the lake, but has advised me that state government see only the money-making potential of this site. This makes me very sad and disillusioned. I've spent many hours down there with the bird life, and they trust humans. It's such a shame, because they shouldn't. This lake, I understand, is going to be decommissioned as a part of the state government's plan to develop the area. I don't understand the word decommissioned in relation to nature. I understand that the word is used for buildings and factories, but I cannot make sense of how they will decommission nature. To me, this sounds like a premeditated wildlife offence and a habitat vandalism. When I saw Nick Wakeling, I asked if the following is to occur. Will species be relocated? Will they save the nesting areas for the birds? What happens to the frog life? Where did the ducks go and their babies, which were lying on the lake? He told me that they would all be gone. Gone, which actually means bulldozed, dead and buried alive. This is animal cruelty. What a cost, what a tragedy. Imagine a bulldozer out there in front of your home. This lake is the clearest ecosystem I have ever seen in the suburbs. From the creek next door, I fished out nearly 100 pieces of foam, plastics and other rubbish. The local creek from the local creek. So this lake is so amazing for all the kids in the area to truly see nature at its best. Once this lake goes, it's gone forever. And the bird life that you hear is gone too. Concrete the crows will be the replacement. I met with Richard from the Knox Environment Society as suggested by Nick Wakeling. Richard advised that I look into a report about the lake by Dr. Lorimer. On Saturday, I read the report and I was lost for words. 
because there are so many critically endangered species such as the rare hairy knotweed, ancient swamp gum and a myriad of bird life. This lake cannot be recreated. This lake should be showcased. Knox should be proud of this. And the government I thought were leaders for a livable future. It just doesn't seem right to turn a deep, thriving lake into wetlands. This will kill everything there and other children will see all the native life they're stressed and will die. Now at the lake all the traffic noises disappear and all you hear is bird life. There are so many birds who come even just to visit and spend time there. To quote a fact, 38 birds from Dr Larimer's report during a three hour site visit. You take this lake away and you take so much from so many birds. Migratory paths have been so affected for so many birds as farmland and housing has taken so much of their homes. I understand that there is a minor engineering problem to fix the wall. I understand this takes money. However, the value of healthy ecosystems for the planet absolutely outweighs this cost. Places like this are the lungs of Melbourne. Our generation relies on your support in the hope that our Australian nature reserves can be saved. I finish with the wise words, we must act local to have an impact globally. Those are really powerful words from Hunter, and we really appreciate him trusting us with his story, to share the word, to get his message out there. But today, he also sent this in as well to explain the ways in which the state government plan don't make sense, to show that he's not just a young man opposed to any changes, but opposed to the reality of what the state government is saying and promising. And this goes to show it's not the 13-year-old who isn't facing the facts and isn't addressing reality. It's adults who should know better. Thank you so much, Hunter, for holding them to account. State government called the lake a dam, but everyone in the community called it a lake. It's 1.6 hectares of eelgrass, rare hairy knotweed, nesting areas and birdlife galore. To fill in the lake and replace the superficial wetlands by bulldozing all the large native trees that need the lake to survive. And believe that wetlands will support the same animals and plant life as the lake is illogical. <clears throat> Even for a 13 year old, deep water life is so different to shallow water life. The endangered bluebill duck needs the deep water lake to survive. And it's as simple as that. No habitat, no species. This is land formerly owned by the Department of Environment, Land, Water, and Planning. This is the department responsible for the care... <sighs> as you can hear, folks, this is a fraught topic. Locals are angry. But, as you've just heard, they're doing everything in their power to voice their displeasure in the right way. And that's why, if you're a Knox local or not, we really need to get behind Hunter. Because if we don't pull all the levers of our democratic society to try to get change done through the system, that's when we have to end up going to the streets. I honestly didn't know at the start of doing this bonus episode if the contrasting stories of Hong Kong and Knox would end up to be poignant. But I think they have. And I'd like to thank Joe Dodds in Hong Kong, Hunter in Knox, and Hunter's mother for sending in this story. Links to Hunter's petition and videos he's taken of Lake Knox can be found in the show notes, as well as more information about the protests in Hong Kong.
Thank you for joining us for this special episode of Climactic, and we'll be back tomorrow and every other Saturday with another story. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective, a podcast network dedicated to lifting the voices of the climate community. You can find out more about the people behind Climactic and all the shows we produce at climactic.fm. We are a social enterprise podcast network, and we greatly appreciate your support. You can find a link to our Pausable where you can support us directly in the show notes of this episode or from our website. Thank you for listening, and from the whole Climactic Collective, keep up the great work and take care of each other in these climactic times. The Climactic Collective. Collective.